Well, thanks to Mark and to everyone who was involved this morning uh, putting things together. Uh, thanks to Robin and the whole worship team for coming in. It's so good to see you guys back in action. So thanks so much for serving us this morning in this way. Well, we are at the end of the Apostles' Creed, and this has been a, an interesting summer as we've worked through this. Now, last, last week I made a threat. I said that this week we are going to have to say the Apostles' Creed without looking at it on screen. I'm not going to make good on that threat. I'm going to allow us, yes, to have words on screen. And so that's mostly for my benefit, so I'm not sure I have it memorized. Um, so if we can put the Apostles' Creed on screen... Now, if you're not familiar with it or you're not sure about it, we never want to make someone say something they don't believe. So just feel free to read the words. That's fine. But if you would, would you join with me by standing? And we are going to say the creed together. Ready? You can close your eyes if you really, really know it. That's fine. <laughs> Here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Well done. You may be seated. Now, I know we haven't examined every single statement in the creed, and there's a few that uh, you read it and you go, wait, what? Um, that's intentional. Uh, we don't spoon feed people here at Bonavista Baptist Church. Some of that research and some of that study is on you. So now we've given you an overview. Dig deeper. Go a little bit further with the creed and use it maybe as a devotional guide. Um, if you're looking to get into it more, uh, there's a couple people I'd recommend, two of my former professors. J.I. Packer and Alistair McGrath, they have devotional guides for the creed. So if you want the link to that, uh, let me know and you can walk through it on your own or you can even dig a little bit deeper than that. But today we're looking at that final statement, the great crescendo right at the end, the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting or the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Such an important statement to end on in this creed. Now, earlier in the summer, uh, Pastor Eric spoke on the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm not going today to take time to correct his sermon. I'll let it stand. No, it's actually a fantastic sermon. You can find it on YouTube, uh, watch it, learn from it. Um, but he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus primarily. We're going to be looking at the general resurrection of those who believe in Jesus and why that's important and how we might begin to wrestle with it and even grasp it. Well, before we do that, we are going to read the passage, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 35 to 57. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, The resurrection of Jesus gives you a sense of God, what God wants to do for the whole world. The resurrection of Jesus, just keep this in mind because it's really important for the whole message. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a sense 
of what God wants to do for the whole world. This agenda of bringing life from death is so much part of what God wants to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Have you ever wondered that? Well, apparently we're not the first. How foolish! What you sow does not come up, come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. Do you ever say to Paul, I'm sorry I asked the question in the first place, because sometimes you just get lost in the words. But let's keep going. Verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have become the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Lots of stuff in that passage, and I hope you take it to heart and read it many times and work through the nuances of it, and at the heart, hear the hope that Paul has in the resurrection. So we want to see that together. Well, saying that we believe in the resurrection is fairly easy to say. It doesn't take too much energy, but it is another thing altogether to begin to comprehend it. Do you agree? It's hard to understand, even sometimes hard for us that have been around for a long time following Jesus to fully grasp and fully believe and fully enter into the implications of it. And there's a reason for that. And we're not alone in that. Even the very early followers of Jesus, those who walked with him, struggled with the resurrection. Do we realize that? Sometimes we think, oh, if I was only there with Jesus in person, I would have the greatest faith. But they didn't. 
They struggled. They had doubts. They had concerns. They had questions. One guy that we love to pick on is Thomas. Not Thomas here today, but Thomas in the Bible. <laughs> Thomas um, is sometimes called Doubting Thomas. I like to call him Believing Thomas because he has a great faith that I think is like a lot of us. Uh, Thomas heard from the other disciples that Jesus not only died, but he heard that Jesus was alive again. And Thomas said, you're not going to fool me. There's no way. And don't be so cruel. I love Jesus like the rest of you. Don't come to me telling me that Jesus is now alive again. I will not believe it until I see it. That was Thomas's big things. Why? Why did Thomas not believe? Well, because it's not normal for people to rise from the dead, right? I mean, it's just not something that happens. Humans don't do that. And so we can excuse Thomas and the rest for being a bit mystified that Jesus was alive from the dead. Now, sometimes we think of uh, New Testament times like miracles are just happening all over the place and people are popping up from the dead all the time. It didn't happen that way. It was actually quite astounding, actually quite frightening to see some of the miracles that Jesus did. And it wasn't like they had seen the ghost of Jesus either, because in Jewish tradition, if you see the ghost of someone, that means they're actually dead, not living. But they were coming to Thomas and saying that Jesus was alive. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it till I see it. What happened? Jesus was kind and gracious, and he shows up. What does he say to Thomas? It's me. Come and touch me. Feel my hands. Feel my side. Come and touch me. Thomas doesn't even need to take a step toward him. He sees Jesus. He falls down. He says, my Lord and my God. That's the right response to the resurrection of Jesus, isn't it? My Lord and my God. And Thomas sees Jesus and he believes. Tells us two important things about the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, <clears throat> it's literal. We're actually talking about Jesus rising from the dead. It's not a metaphor for something. They didn't go out and change the world in the name of a metaphor. They went out and changed the world because Jesus actually was alive again. And it's also physical. It wasn't a spirit or a ghost. I know Paul talks about the spiritual body in this passage, and sometimes that's misunderstood. Really what he's talking about, the body that is by the Spirit of God, the body that is given as a heavenly body as opposed to the body that we have on earth. It's different. But Jesus wasn't raised as a spirit or a ghost. He was raised with a physical body. He says, Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side, come and see me. That's what we believe, as astounding as it is. That's what we proclaim. So how do we wrestle with that? How do we begin to comprehend that? How do we enter into the resurrection? Well, Paul gives us at least three images of the resurrection to help us out. And that's what I want to do today. I want to look very briefly at each of these three images so you can take these home and unpack them. So are we ready? The first image, sorry, are we ready? Yes? Okay, good. Excellent. The first image is this, the first fruits. Now, Paul does a similar thing to Jesus. He takes something that we're familiar with, that we can get our mind around, in order to invite us to explore the impossible, to invite us to explore something that's bigger and beyond. And so he starts with the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, earlier on in the passage that we read, it says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Now, I know we don't use that phrase first fruits too often, right? But we are familiar with the concept. We have tomatoes in our backyard, four tomato plants to be precise. They were a gift from someone at the church, which we're very grateful for. The only problem is I'm a terrible farmer. I, I mean, I, can be, I can't grow anything to save my life. It's a good thing there's a co-op grocery store nearby because I don't know what I would do if I was on my own. But I was determined in order to honor the person that gave us these plants, I was going to protect them, shelter them, and occasionally water them. So far, so good. And they have actually grown to be fairly large tomato plants. But I was nervous this last number of weeks because all the tomatoes on it were green and hard. And I'm going, what is going on here? See, I'm a BC boy at heart. By now, we've harvested several crops of tomatoes. And so I'm wondering, what is happening with these plants? Did I do something wrong? Today, I saw a tomato that's turning red. It did my heart good, right? What is that? That's the first fruit. What does it tell us? The rest of the harvest is coming. Right? That's the promise of the first fruits. When Jesus was risen again from the dead, it wasn't just a one-off event. That's meant to be a first fruit. It's a sign to us that all of those who believe in Jesus are coming along behind them. We're all part of that harvest. That's how Paul wants us to enter into the resurrection with this promise, with this hope. And just as Jesus was risen from the dead, literally and physically, so we will be like him. Because he was the first fruit, the rest of us are going to turn red as well. <laughs> the rest of us are going to rise from the dead as well, if we have faith in Jesus Christ. And so first fruits remind us of the promise of the resurrection. We will be like him. Okay, the second image. And this is the image that was at the heart of the passage that we read together. The second image is the seed. This is a popular image for Jesus. It's a popular image for Paul. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps, of wheat or of something else. If I came to you right now and I put a seed in your hand, would you be able to tell right away what would come of that seed if you planted it? Maybe some of you would, actually. I couldn't, unless it was like an obvious, like an apple seed. And I think I would recognize that. But generally, a lot of seeds, when you look at them honestly, you can't begin to imagine what they'll grow into. You can't begin to imagine that this little thing in your hand, this dried up crusty thing, will be planted in the ground and will grow into something like a flower or a tomato plant or a tree. Like, think about that for a moment. That's incredible. That's amazing. Think of the very first time when you were a kid and you did the seed experiment. Do you remember doing that when you were a kid? I loved that. We, we got the seed, we wrapped it in some like tissue paper. You've done it for a tot spot many, many times. See, all the new life you've brought into this world, Lori. It's amazing. <laughs> and so you put that seed into the little cup and everything else, and the magic that happens when it begins to germinate and grow. And I remember as a kid watching that and thinking, I'll never be able to do this again. But for this moment... I'm going to enjoy my little plant. There's a magic, there's a mystery, there's a beauty, there's a wonder to this process. And even though we can explain it scientifically because we've got that far, we can go into all the details, but still, come on. It's amazing. 
that this little crusty thing that you put in the ground produces something beautiful that we couldn't imagine. Paul says, that's the resurrection. I know we can't grasp it right now. We can't hold on to it. We can't, we can't fully understand it, but we know this, that this planted in the ground is going to grow into something that's going to be more beautiful than we can ever imagine. The resurrection has that promise of wonder and beauty and hope and truth, and we need to just wonder at it. So the seeds remind us of the power of the resurrection, that we will be changed. We will not be the same. So there is continuity. It's still the seed that's planted, but there is transformation that comes. That's what the seed tells us. Okay, the third thing, the tent. And for this, we have to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, where Paul says this, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. When he's talking about this, he's talking literally about our bodies. He's comparing our body to a tent. But he's comparing our resurrection body to a permanent house, a permanent dwelling. I love to camp. At least I used to love to camp until I turned 50. <laughs> and um, this last year we went camping. And I've told some of you the stories of my camping woes. And when we went camping, we take a tent. And we've got a number of tents to choose from, um, but we chose the biggest one. And this tent is big. Like, it's a, it's a cabin tent. And I can stand up. I'm six foot tall. I can stand up. Ethan Nickerson could stand up in this tent and still have room. Like, it's a huge tent. It's got two big rooms in it. It even has a door. No zippers for us, man. We've got like a D door that opens so you walk fully into the tent. We've survived all kinds of storms in the tent too, so we know it's sturdy. But this last time camping uh, up near Edmonton, we hit several thunderstorms and a couple of tornado warnings. And these two characters in the front row, who shall remain nameless, were sound asleep. And I'm lying on my mat in the tent watching the lightning, hearing the thunder, listening to a bunch of coyotes who made a recent kill just over beside me, and thinking, this is not a good idea. This is not a permanent dwelling. You know how they say, when it roars, go indoors? They don't say, when it roars, lie under a tree in the forest. That's not what you're supposed to do. I had the real sense, as I was lying there, of that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4 that says this. For while we are in this tent, we groan. <laughs> Every morning I groaned getting up too. You can imagine that. The tent is not a permanent home, is it? We, we understand how fragile it is at times. This body is not a permanent home. And we understand how fragile it is at times. As strong as we think we are, just something can go sideways in our lives and we realize how fragile this body is. A number of years ago, uh, Christine and I had a, a chance to go to El Salvador and work with CBM in a long-term project as part of our church. And we were involved in helping to build and rebuild this community. And so we were building this, these great houses alongside the local church. And the houses were, were brick and they were sturdy and they had rebar and they had solid roofs. They had a, you know, two or three rooms and a nice veranda. We're building it for families who had survived an earthquake. I mean, they were living on the side of a volcano, um, so it happens from time to time, but it wiped them out. And there's this little girl, Samana, 
And we were just reminded of her on Facebook just a few days ago. I think she was about nine years old. And uh, she had only known the tent in her whole life. She was born under a tarp and she lived under a tarp for nine years of her existence. All she knew was the tent. And when we gave her the keys to her new house, she was overcome with emotion because now she saw the permanent structure. I think that's a lot like us. I think we've become so familiar with this. We've become familiar with this body that we think this is the permanent structure. And so we pour all our attention, all our lives, all our impulses, everything into this as if we're holding on to this for eternity. But Paul says, don't forget that this is just a tent. This is temporary. This is going to be, be you're going to find weakness. You're going to find fragility. You're going to find all kinds of problems with this because God is building for us a permanent home. That's the resurrection. The resurrection is the permanent home. Tents remind us of the permanence of the resurrection, that we will finally be home. So Paul reminds us of the promise and the power and the permanence of the resurrection. Why does he do that? Well, for those who are currently suffering, if you're suffering today with illness or with emotional stress or whatever it is that you're facing, for those who are currently suffering, Paul says there is something better to come. Keep holding on. Keep holding on. But for those who are currently enjoying the good life, for those who are healthy and enjoying life to its full, Paul also says there's something better to come. But he says, don't hold on too tightly. You see the difference? Don't hold on too tightly. In the good times, we tend to grip life like we don't want to let it go. And in the bad times, we want to let go far too quickly. And Paul says, keep holding on if you're facing struggle. But if you're facing the good life, don't hold on too tightly because there's something better to come. There's something better to come. And to us all, Jesus says this, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Don't spend all of our time amassing treasures here on earth. Don't pour all our heart and energy into it. Discover the things that truly last. Discover those things and give yourself to them. Well, let's end with the verse at the very end of the passage, and uh, I'll read it in the message translation. It says this, with all this going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourself into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Let's pray together. Father, there's times that we pick up your word and we speak things from this pulpit or to one another that are really just beyond our comprehension because of the limitations of our mind and our experience. But we thank you that you sent one, Jesus, that he came and experienced life for us and death on our behalf, but that he conquered death and was raised again to life. Thank you for the reliable witnesses who saw that and reported it. And thank you for these 2,000 years of history that remind us that we too can participate in that resurrection. Help us to believe today. Help us to take encouragement and hope from this. And help us to invest in the things that last. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.